0: started. So of course we're studying through the book of Nehemiah, Big Calling Bigger God, looking at how Nehemiah used wisdom and courage during difficult times are to overcome great challenges that God had given him in his calling and seeing obviously how that can speak to us and how we can use both wisdom and courage in order to overcome and accomplish, overcome the difficulties and accomplish the things that God has given to us to do. We are studying through, we have completed the building of the wall, Uh, and then in the last chapter, in chapter 7, Nehemiah turned his attention immediately from the bricks and mortar to the people, the spiritual state of the people. And so after this huge uh, building project, he calls them all together to what we would basically call a um, nationwide Bible conference. Uh, and so they have all come together uh, in front of the Watergate. They've built a huge platform uh, and they have spent the entire morning, probably some five or six hours, uh, reading the word of God. And so Nehemiah and a group of elders, up on the platform, we're taking turns reading passages, and then Nehemiah would step back up and he would spend a few moments explaining the passage. And then we know that there were a group of Levites that were moving in and through the people that were making sure that even the small groups of people uh, understood what was going on. And so we see over and over again in the first half of this chapter uh, that the emphasis is not just on the proclamation of the word, but it is on the understanding of the word. And so now we pick up, um, continuing uh, in verse 9, and Nehemiah steps back in. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So remember that the emphasis at this reading uh, would have been on the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, with an emphasis on uh, the law. Remember, there's um, so many different commands that they are given throughout uh, the Levitical books, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of them uh, rule so many things on to do and not to do. And so as they're hearing this word, not only again read, but explained the people began to weep and we understand that this is a very natural reaction to a full understanding of the requirements of the law when they heard and understood the law they also understood that they were violators of it so tears flowed not tears of joy but tears of penitent sorrow that came from a grieved conscience In realizing this huge disconnect between the the law that they had been given and their accomplishment, or rather non-accomplishment of it. It's a powerful revelation for them that their sin and rebellion against God's law was literally what had led them into captivity. So for them, this isn't just uh, the morning of a a personal breaking of the law, as we might understand, right? We can can understand that as we come face to face with God's law and how we have broken it, we would have a personal sorrow. But remember that they also have a national, um, they have basically just come out of a national punishing of the entire nation for the nation's breaking law. This is why they were in captivity in the first place. It's because they continued king after king after king, generation after generation after generation to turn away from God's laws, to turn away from his worship, to turn to idols, and it was God's punishment on that that literally led to the destruction of their city, the destruction of their temple, the scattering of them for an entire generation, and they are just literally now coming back from that, and so this would have been doubly heavy for them. We also remember, um, and or rather we understand now, we're given a much clearer picture um, through the lens of the New Testament, uh, exactly the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. We've been clearly told that the purpose of the law was for us to be able to see our sin. Now, sin is a natural state of our being um, that came from the, the, the breaking of the law in Adam. So when Adam and Eve sinned and broke the law of God, part of that punishment, that breaking of their spirit, if you will, was something that was then passed on from generation to generation. It is part of our nature. So sin is not necessarily the things that we do wrong. The things that we do wrong are just the outward expression of that inward brokenness that is already there. And the New Testament tells us very clearly that the law was given to us so that we might be able to see what we cannot see with our physical eyes. We can't see that broken nature on our inside. And so the law is given to us so that we can clearly see. It becomes the proper lens through which we can look at ourselves. The law law doesn't make us sinners. It simply shows us what we already are. We're not sinners because of the law. It is the law that allows us to see that we are sinners. Think about a flu test, if you will, as an analogy, right? Um, When you go into the doctor, you may be feeling a little bit bad, right? You may feel like you've got this symptom or that symptom, You're not sure exactly what's wrong. You think maybe something's wrong. So what do they do? They give you a flu test and that flu test allows them to diagnose the inward thing that you can't see, right? You can see some of those symptoms out there, but you can't, you can't see the flu. So the test becomes that way of affirming that you have this. The flu test doesn't give you the flu. The flu test is what helps you recognize that you have it and then allows you to take action to it. And the law becomes the same thing. The law doesn't make us sinners. So we don't look at it and go, well, if there hadn't been that command, I wouldn't have broken it and I wouldn't be a sinner. Nope, you'd still be a sinner. You just would be blind to the fact that you are broken. So just like the flu test, it allows us to see the nature, the true nature of ourselves, and then we can begin to take action with it. So when the law is held up as a mirror for our sin, it also becomes a magnifying glass for God's glory. So weeping is the only natural outcome. When when we see this discrepancy between our lowly state and God's exalted state, A deep sorrow overcomes us at that divide. So the law not only allows us to see our imperfections, but in comparison, it allows us to see God's perfections. And then we understand that huge divide that exists. And that's exactly what's happening here with the people. And so they begin to weep. They begin to mourn. But Nehemiah and Ezra step in and say, nope. We're not going to do that. They say today is holy. Remember that word holy means to be set apart. It means that we have a different focus for this day. Of course, the people are weeping very naturally, but they're told not to because that day is not about them. It's about God. While the law does help them to see their deficiencies, more importantly, it should be helping them see God's sufficiencies and how those greatly outweigh anything that they have done wrong. And so if that's the nature of what's being presented here, we can see through the lens of the New Testament very clearly, this is the gospel. So it's humiliating, it's humbling to realize that we uh, are, are sinners, that we are broken, that we are separated from God, and we should absolutely mourn our sin. We should detest our rebellion, But eventually, that should be overshadowed by the glorious sacrifice of Jesus. He is the center of the gospel. Yes, we have to walk through the doors of our sin, if you will. But we should walk through them into the grand banquet hall of his forgiveness. And so while we do mourn and weep our sin, that sin, that mourning must turn into a celebration Because as we realize how we are broken, we realize how much was given to us that we might be redeemed. We think about the words of Psalms uh, chapter 30, verse 5, that say, For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. The joy always comes at the end of, when we reach God. And this, of course, is the ultimate expression of the gospel. The gospel is not about our sin, even though we have to understand our sin to embrace it. The gospel is about the forgiveness, the joy that comes through a relationship with God that is only established by Jesus Christ. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to tell the people here. I understand that you're weeping, but today's not about weeping. Today is holy. Today is about focusing on God. So we go on to verse 10 and he says, it says, Then he said to them, this is of course Nehemiah, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now Nehemiah, of course, has a plan. Like, will we expect anything less from Nehemiah, right? Uh, Of course, we talked about how uh, he's organized this meeting He's been planning it, obviously, through the amount of preparation that would have taken uh, to organize such an event. This is not something that he just decided as soon as the last brick was laid. This is something that would have been paralleling um, the last laying of the, the hanging of the gates and the setting of the bars. And so here he's been planning and prepping. And here we see once again, that's exactly what he's been doing. Of course, he stepped back. During the teaching portion, he understood that there were those that were better qualified than him to be able to proclaim, to explain, to teach. And so he stepped back and allowed them to do that. But now he steps back in again with this organization of this feasting. This very practical advice that he gives them shows first that he understands the nature of this holy moment. He wants them to feast. This isn't just a meal, right? We can look and see what he's talking about here. This is a feast, a celebration. So he understands the need for that celebration. But second, he also understands the still very limited resources that the people has. And so what does he tell them? He says, you need to look around, you need to celebrate, but if there's others that don't have anything ready, you need to share with them so that they can all celebrate. He clearly wants them to feast, right? This is not just a regular meal. This, this fat portions and the sweet wine, these are things that were used only at celebrations. This is definitely a celebration he's instructing them to He's instructing them not to skimp on the festivities, but He wants to encourage them to be sure that everybody can participate. This moment is about celebrating God, but it's about all of God's people celebrating God together. This, of course, is a great reminder to us that true, celebra- truly celebrating the Lord is not an act of escapism for believers. It's an act of invigoration, right? This is the key difference between the way that the church celebrates and the way that the world celebrates, right? So often when the world celebrates, when they throw a party, when they celebrate, it's all about escapism, right? They're trying to escape the reality of their world. That's why so much um, of the world celebration, uh, even you know, out, out or especially outside of church festivities or holidays, you know, Christmas and Easter. But so much of how the world celebrates focuses so much around drugs and alcohol. Why? Because they're attempting to escape through this momentary pleasure the harshness of the world, but that's not at all what believers do. When believers celebrate, we are celebrating in a way that invigorates our faith. We are celebrating a greater joy, right? We're not trying to separate ourselves for this moment of joy. We're celebrating a greater joy that we understand is happening all the time. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is calling the people to do here is, is look, yes, God has done something great in this moment, but we're going to celebrate and we're going to have this festival because God has been, is, and always will be at work in, around, and through his people. And then he makes this incredible declaration that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So we have to ask ourselves a very practical way, how does enjoying the Lord turn into our strength? So basically what he's summarizing here, right? That as we enjoy the Lord, it becomes our strength having pleasure in God somehow becomes an advantage to us. So there's a theological term that has been popularized in the last couple of generations called Christian hedonism. Now, it's not a new concept. Um, it's the, the foundations of it are taken um, all the way back from the Westminster Catechism. Um, but that term, Christian hedonism, has been kind of coined around it in the last couple of generations. And Christian hedonism is basically defined like this. It is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world, his ultimate goal is his glory, right? And our deepest desire, and our deepest desires to be happy, are actually one and the same desire. Why? because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not only is God the supreme source of our satisfaction for a human soul, but God himself is glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Therefore, our pursuit of joy becomes essential to our Christian life. Now, obviously, this is a little bit counter to um, the many of the esoteric ways that, uh, the, the, especially the Catholic church, uh, kind of put that we're, we're really supposed to suffer for God. Right. Um, and that kind of became, um, a, a, a concept that was kind of across all of Christian Christianity, right? We should be suffering from God. If we're not miserable in this life, then we're not living out the life that God has called us to do, right? We should suffer because we have to give up sin and we should suffer because we're working for God and we should, we should always be suffering some way. And that's not at all what the call of the Christian life is. Christian hedonism claims that Christian, the Christian life should be the pursuit of our maximum joy if it understands that that maximum joy can only be found in God. So both joy in quantity and quality are the result of being fully satisfied in God. Psalm 1611 reminds us that fullness of joy and joy forever are found only in God. So what's this, this concept saying is basically saying exactly what Nehemiah is saying here, that we are strongest in our lives when we are finding the most joy in God. And so therefore, as we pursue joy in him, it becomes a strength for us. The reminder that God punishes sin, obviously brought them to tears, but the revelation that God blesses obedience is now bringing the ultimate joy. And so we understand for us in application that it becomes the same, that we should pursue an ultimate joy in God. When we, we seek to be completely satisfied in him, when we look at everything that he is, everything that he's given to us, and we say, this is enough, We are fully satisfied in what he has given to us then our joy is maximized because we are completely satisfied. But as we are completely satisfied and we proclaim that to others around us, that I have all I need in Christ, then he becomes even more glorified by us because we're not pursuing other things to add to him, right? Like I don't need God and a good job. I don't need God and a healthy family. I don't need God and a healthy body. I just need God. I am completely and fully satisfied in him. And so just like Nehemiah is telling the people here, the call for us is to find how we can find the most joy in God and his calling. And when we do that, then we find also the most satisfaction. So verse 11 goes on and says, The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. So this might be better translated as the Levites as well. Um, Obviously, uh, we've already talked about kind of the structure of the um, Bible conference, the revival, whatever you want to call it, that they're having here, right? That There's this platform, and so things are being... Proclaim publicly from the platform, but then the Levites are moving among the people. Um, And so we can probably understand this more now to be that, you know, Ezra, uh, maybe Nehemiah took the platform as well. It says that he spoke it. So maybe Nehemiah goes back up and they proclaim this to the people. But now the Levites again are moving among the people, trying to calm them, to bring them comfort, um, to help them see this reality. Um, So these lay leaders are working the message throughout all the people again. Um, This is a good reminder to us. That while leaders are critical, no leader can lead alone, especially in God's kingdom, right? Um, We are the body of Christ. Every part is necessary. Often joke that the problem with being the body of Christ is every church member wants to be the appendix, right? They want to be the part that's just hanging there. doesn't have to do anything. Um, We all have a role in what God has called us to do as a church. And that role extends well beyond just the head, right? Just the mouth. Obviously God is the head, right? Um, The pastors, the elders kind of become the mouth proclaiming um, God's direction for the people, But that proclamation doesn't enable action without the hands and the feet and the arms and the legs. And so everybody becomes essential in accomplishing what God calls his people to do. It can't be done through just a leader. It takes a people, a body, a community... Um, Which is what we're trying to establish, obviously, here uh, in North Conway. That it's not just um, one pastor. It's not just one pastor and the deacon elders. It's not just one pastor and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers. It's everybody. It takes everybody. You look at the the most beautiful immediate example is what happened right there on that lawn just a couple of weeks ago, right, with the fall carnival. That wasn't something that that just I did by speaking it into existence, right? Fall carnival, boom, and there it is, right? That wasn't something that happened just because Ms. Sherry put so many hours into organizing and and administering and in planning things right it took place because everybody literally i mean there's probably 100 people standing around uh when we were out there praying before that came together to enable that to happen and so everybody was essential to accomplishing that ministry out into the community our community was loved on because Everybody came together. And so we see that exactly here again. That it's not just Nehemiah. It's not just Nehemiah and Ezra. It's not just Nehemiah, Ezra, and the leaders on the platform. It's everybody working together to make sure that there's an understanding and an application of what God has called these people to do. So then verse 12 goes on and it says, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink. And to send portions and to to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So obviously here we kind of have a um, summary of the events, right? So we've kind of been given the revival portion uh, in um, the first eight verses, and now we're kind of turning to the celebration portion. We've kind of been told what Ezra's done or Ezra and Nehemiah have said. We're told what the Levites kind of explained. We've kind of unpacked it all. And so now we kind of get this summary verse here. It's a confirmation that this was not just some vision that the leaders had, right? That never actually took place. No, this was something that was embraced by Ezra. Everybody It's easy enough for Ezra and Nehemiah to stand up and say something, right? But this verse is that confirmation that the people embraced everything that they heard because they clearly understood what was being told to them. This word, that word because there um, gives us an even more critical piece here in the summary of not just the what's, but the why's of it all. The core reason that all of these things were asked and done, the understanding of God's word by his people. Again, we've talked about this in this chapter, how that theme has come over and over and over again. It's not just the proclamation, it's the understanding. And so here again, the understanding becomes the hinge point between what is said and what is actually done by the people. It's a huge step from blind religiousness to a divine human fellowship, right? The people are not just hearing and obeying, they're hearing and understanding and obeying. And that becomes a critical difference here between them just blindly following what they are told and understanding, right? That understanding is what enables a fellowship between them and God, which is the ultimate goal of what's happening here anyway. The God that wants to be known by his people is here known, and that is the cause to the celebration. Not just a new year, but a new beginning. So application question here for you is, do you ever stop and ask yourself, why? Why do I do the things that I do at church? Not just the what, right? Not just, do I go to Sunday school? Do I go to worship? Do I read my Bible every day? There's the what's, and the what's are important, but more important than the what's are the whys. And so you need to stop and ask yourselves, why? Why do I go to Sunday school every week? Why do I go to worship every week? Why do I sing or not sing during the worship time? Why do I take notes or not take notes during the sermon time? Why do I come to Wednesday in the Word? Ask yourselves those whys, because the whys become so critically important. Because those whys sometimes are the difference between, again, just that blindly following and that actual developing of a relationship between us and God. So verse 13 goes on and says on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe in order to study the word of the law. So now we're transitioning from day one to day two, right? So we talked about the fact that this was the first day of the first month, kind of the new year celebration as well. That came um, very, very closely um, to the end of the completing of the walls within just uh, less than a week. And so here we have this first day where everybody comes together at the water gate. Um, some tens of thousands, possibly as many as 30, 36,000 people, um, maybe even more, uh, that were there to hear this on this first day. Um, Ezra's teaching, the Levites are moving and explaining, and now we make a transition from that first day. Now everybody's gone back, they've gone back to their homes in the afternoon, they've celebrated. And now we turn to the next day and we see what happens here. <clears throat> so the following day, we move from extensive teaching to an intensive teaching. And so here we see that on the second day, on the first day, there was extensive teaching, right? Long passages, large groups of people. But here we move now to a much more intensive teaching. The heads of the father's houses. This is probably um, is the, the, the chief chiefs among all of the groups remember how family structure is so important even in the last chapter when we were looking at who was coming back and how they were organized it was always done by the the heads of the houses so this family structure is still very very important here but it also reminds us that this is a chief reality not just for the old testament people but is also a reality for the church The church is not the family, and a church can only supplement the family, right? So here, the second day, they turn to where? They turn to the families. They bring in these heads of the families in order to make sure they are understanding, intensely studying, so that they can perpetuate this back through the family. And so we're reminded again, just like they understood, that the church is not a family, right? Right? The church has to supplement the family. It can never replace it. The primary responsibility for knowing and doing God's word rest in individuals, in the parents to raise up their children, in husbands to lead their wives, older people to mentor younger people. The true and ongoing work could not be left only to the priest and the Levites here, and it can't be left only to pastors and ministry directors in our day and age. This gets back to a concept that we've talked about um, a couple of times throughout this study, I think mostly last year. But if you remember this word subsidiarity, it's a concept that we've talked about a couple of times.